Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. So um, you have probably heard the news out of Arkansas about a statewide, um, basically an abortion ban. You have heard about the passage uh, of a heartbeat bill in South Carolina. My guess is you have heard about other efforts across the country at the state level to um, bring greater restrictions upon access to abortion. And maybe you are uh, saying to yourself, well, I'm a little bit surprised by that because Often all I hear uh, is the prevalence of abortion in the country, and all I hear are the calls for uh, not only greater and greater access at all points uh, along the pregnancy, but you know also for taxpayer funding of it. And so I want to lift up the reality that what, what progressives see as regressive, so what, what progressive, progressives point to, Let's say these developments in Arkansas and South Carolina in particular, and they say that is regressive. How is it possible that in 2021 in the United States of America, there could be people who would think that abortion should be restricted uh, in any way at any point in in pregnancy for any cause or reason? Um, and who who out there thinks that it shouldn't be paid for by taxpayers? Who, who, you know, it should be free. Um, it's not regressive to believe that a life in the womb is a life, is a human life. It's not regressive to believe that uh, abortion kills a beating heart. And so when we as Christians engage in the conversations of the day, particularly when the headlines um, include the word abortion, we need to do so uh, recognizing the ground upon which we stand, recognizing that God alone is the giver of life, recognizing that uh, for all of humanity's creative capacities, we don't have the ability to um, breathe life into dust, and God does. And so uh, as people who honor life and as people who live in the midst of uh, what is often called a culture of death, one of the things that you're going to be hearing about today is the U.S. death rate. According to a report being released by the CDC, which Politico is already reporting on, the U.S. death rate increased by 15 percent in 2020. Now, to, that's the largest spike since uh, 1918. Just as a note of comparison, the death rate decreased in 2019 by 1.2 percent. So uh, according to the CDC, more than 3 million Americans died in 2020, COVID-19 uh, the third largest cause of death behind heart disease and cancer. Now, every year that these numbers come out and every time this comes up, I say the same thing. So forgive me if it's becoming like a broken record for you, but uh, the leading cause of death in America is not cancer, it is not heart disease, and it is not COVID. The leading, the leading cause of death in America is abortion. 
if you were going to count the people who would be alive today, except for some external cause, abortion would be the leading cause of death. So let us prepare ourselves to have those conversations today and to honor the God who is the God of life, even as we um, enter into with redemptive words of grace and mercy into the lives of those who have had abortions, I recognize that it is a prevalent reality. I also am not afraid to call it what it is. Um, And I am not afraid to stand alongside those who are in ministries working to uh, not only redeem people who have had the experience of abortion in their life and talk with, uh, talk with them about grace and goodness and healing, um, but to stand with those who stand for life today on the front lines of the pro-life movement uh, and, and claim that life is life and God is the giver of it, and we are not in a position to take it away. All right, Adam Holtz from Focus on the Family's Plugged In Ministry is waiting in the wings. He and I are going to review some movies and, oh, talk about some other stuff going on in the culture. We'll be right back. All right, that's super fun. Peppy walk-up music means that Adam Holtz is back. Well, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. Okay, do you have a ton of snow where you are right now? Uh, it's coming. Snowpocalypse is coming. We're uh, depending on which of the wildly varying forecasts you look at. We're supposed to get between two and six feet of snow this weekend. <laughs> okay, yeah, so that's it's just... funny. It's funny for you because you're in Minnesota. You're not in Minnesota. You're in Nashville. Today I'm in Wisconsin. Today I'm in you're Wisconsin. In Wisconsin. Okay. I know. Broadcasting live from Madison, Wisconsin. I'm always broadcasting live, but mostly you know from the studio in my yard. So it's uh, right. it's Friday. I'm broadcasting today from 104.7 uh, FM and AM 1190 in Madison, Wisconsin. Whoop whoop. Love. I love Madison. It's a great town. Oh, so fun. Okay, so um, let's do some movie reviews. Do you want to – let so the one that seems super sad but also like maybe really good is The Father. Yeah, and that pretty much sums it up. So uh, this is a new Anthony Hopkins movie, and it is about the subject of dementia. Uh, it is a, a movie in which he plays a man succumbing to the ravages of – of of his memory just going and Olivia Coleman uh, who some people may know from the crown plays his daughter and she's really trying trying to stay present with him and to help him and it's difficult uh this is a painful movie and here's where I think there's real value uh in this movie if you or someone in your family is going through this Man, Alzheimer's and dementia can be an incredibly difficult issue to talk about. It's hard for people to admit that it's maybe started. It's hard for family members to sometimes tell other people, hey, this is happening to somebody you've known for a long time. Um, And I think that movies at their best can provide a conversational springboard to help us grapple with real world stuff. And and this one definitely does that. It's PG-13. For two harsh profanities, I mean, honestly, 
I feel like they threw them in just to get that rating and make it seem just a teensy bit edgier. But other than that, there's really no content at all. Uh, it's not likely a movie you're going to watch with little kids anyway. Um, but uh, it's a it's a lovely movie, but it's a difficult one. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you bringing it to us. How about Yes Day, um, which seems <laughs> utterly opposite and super it, silly? It could not be more more different. Like, you want to talk about polar ends of the movie spectrum. Uh, this is a Jennifer Garner movie, and she plays a mom who says no to her kids a lot. And they, uh, they're really tired of her saying no to everything. And she says, all right, we're going to have a yes day, which is a 24-hour period where she and her husband say yes to everything. I mean, within reason. They're not, like, flitting off to Bora Bora or anything like that. Um, and, of course... The kids want to make the most of it, so they game the system to maximize and leverage those yeses, you know, to absurd and silly levels. Um, this is a fun movie. What you see is what you get. Uh, there are a couple of misuses of God's name. There's one sort of blink and you'll miss it potential allusion to a same-sex couple. Uh, but it's again, it's not even spoken. It's more just hinted at. Um, and really, that's about it. This is uh, this. Other than those things, it feels like almost like the crazy, zany Disney movies of the 70s. I mean, that's what it's kind of a throwback vibe. And Jennifer Garner is just delightful. She does these, yeah. you know, expressions with her eyes and her face that <laughs> are just incredible. So I think harried moms everywhere will relate to saying no and saying yes. And and maybe there's a discussion in there if you want to go deeper. This is not really a discussion starter movie, but you could take it there. You could talk about why do we say yes and why do we say no? What do we what do we block out and what do we embrace? And and I think also why does God do the same? Like there's a there's yeah, there totally. are opportunities for concert. Yeah, yeah. I it's really fun and a great opportunity for conversation. So thank you for both of those. Um, Adam Holtz and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a post that uh, you can find at PluggedIn.com. It's the Plugged In Shows, Episode 68. Are you using text parental controls? And my answer is probably not as well as I need to be. So we're going to talk about that next. All right, I'm continuing my conversation with Adam Holtz from Focus on the Family's Plugged In. You can find what we're talking about today at PluggedIn.com. Um, so, Adam, the, the podcast that is teed up right now uh, from the Plugged In show is episode 68, and it asks the question about my effective use or ineffective use or just, frankly, total failure to sometimes use <laughs> at all. Um, the, the parental c controls that are provided um, through technology. Uh, so... This is everything from my television itself has parental yep. controls on it to everything that you could click on on the television has the option for a parental control on it, as does yep. every device, as does every app on every device. I could just spend all my time negotiating parental controls. You could. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about in this podcast is if we're not using parental controls, why are we not using them? And like you, I'm going to say we're inconsistent. I mean, there are places where we've been vigilant and places where I'm like, oh, I need to really think through that. Um, and I think we're pretty representative. I think there's a small percentage of really diligent, really tech savvy folks out there 
who just kind of naturally do this. And the other 90% of us are somewhere between, you know, maybe we figured out how Netflix works and, you know, oh, well, about the rest of it and or not at all. Um, and I think that there's a psychological thing going on because it's if we haven't done it before, we don't know how to do it. But but most of these controls are relatively simple. And you go through and you you set them and forget them. It'll take five minutes. And so we've also got a blog up getting started with parental controls that walks you through how to do that with Netflix. And here's what I would liken it to. You know how you get used to the controls in your car? <clears throat> All cars have pretty much the same controls, although the new ones these days feel like you need an encyclopedia to figure out how to use everything. Um, but, you know, you've got your basic controls and then you go on vacation and maybe you get a rental car and those controls are in a, a slightly different place. And it takes a few minutes to familiarize yourself with, OK, here's how this car does it. I think parental controls are simple or similar in that they all do essentially the same thing. They all do it a little bit differently. And what we have to do is just take that first step of, OK, I'm going to take 15 minutes today and I'm going to figure out Netflix. OK, we set those controls. And I think that that empowers us because it demystifies it. I think for a lot of us, it feels like this mystical tech mumbo jumbo. And, you know, pick the two or three either devices or services that you use the most and and step into those. Uh, and and I think on the other side, for the 10% who are really diligent, um, we also have to recognize that just setting parental controls, it's not set it and forget it as far as the conversations we need to keep having. This is one tool in our arsenal, but in both ways, whether we're learning how to do it for the first time or over-reliant, we want to be engaged relationally with our kids because that is the ultimate parental control. Well, and as our kids age and mature, we want to give them an increasing right. level of responsibility. Absolutely. Just rec Absolutely. recognizing that otherwise they're going to turn 18 and they're going to leave our house. And then all of a sudden, they, those parental controls are all going to be off and everything's right. going to be available to them. So helping them learn to make wise choices and navigate you know, at age appropriate levels and stages, uh, you know, is, is a part of this conversation as well. It's a really good podcast. Uh, I commend it to you guys. You can find it at pluggedin.com. All right. So um, I, of course, want to talk about a couple of other headlines that I have saved yes. for you because right. who else, who else in my lineup could I pitch <laughs> a uh, story to about the citizens of South Park getting vaccinated against COVID-19 uh, by the Israelis? Yeah, no, there's an and and there's like a Bernie Sanders character sitting in a chair. I mean, right. <laughs> oh, you know, South Park, it's so crazily irreverent. And yet it, it just continually taps into the cultural zeitgeist. And in this episode, uh, basically, they're wanting the, the guys in South Park are wanting to get vaccinated and they hold up and mention uh, Israel, it's like, you know, they can get it figured out in Israel. What do we have to do? Go to Israel to get vaccinated? Why can't we do this here? Uh, and Israel, of course, uh, has in a, in a very strange kind of way seized upon this episode of South Park as a national advertisement. It's a very strange story. But I think the main thing it illustrates is how our popular culture is not just a localized thing anymore. It is a global culture. It's a global phenomena. And stories that happen one place used to be isolated to that place. 
Now it feels like so much of what we engage with is global, uh, and that certainly applies to our entertainment as well. So I just wanted to highlight that because people might um, have seen that. And then let's talk about this story about, um, well, a conversation, you know, I think that this has probably sparked in most people's minds by um, maybe the recent events related to uh, Dr. Seuss books. But let's talk about the, you know, the tendency to cancel things from the past versus what TCM is doing, which is reframing them. Tell us what's going on here. Yeah, you know, TCM is doing what I think we at Plugged In have really encouraged. I'm glad that they were listening and took our hint. Um, TCM is Turner Classic Movies, and these are just old classic movies, and they are trying to set the cultural context for films that um, maybe in retrospect have things that are, are pretty offensive or potentially problematic here. Everything from Gone with the Wind to Breakfast at Tiffany's. Psycho has started showing up on lists of the bad films. And I think this is terrific because, honestly, the more granular the cancel culture gets, the list of potential potential cancellation you know, infractions just grows and grows. Is there going to be anything left? And I think all of us need to recognize that all art is created in a cultural moment and a cultural context, and that context changes over time, it doesn't mean that we never interact with those things. It means we need to think about the context in which, in which it's created. Just like when we're doing Bible study, we think about context. We need to be exegeting the culture and even as we exegete scripture. So some of those Bible study skills we can bring to bear on our entertainment. We're observing, we're asking questions, we're interpreting, and we're seeking to understand And I think so many of these controversies could be dealt with if we just let people be adults and process this stuff, as opposed to saying, oh, no, this is bad. We have to get rid of it forever. All right. And now we will let you weigh in um, on whether or not you think the two foot prediction of snow or the six foot (laughs) prediction of snow is closer to reality where you live. Either, Either way, you're so blessed. How fun is that? I know it's going to be so much fun. Our dog doesn't even know what's coming. He's going to be trying to do, you know, what dogs do outside under the snow. So that should be interesting. I, you know, I don't know. I have seen it go both ways where we get ready for these snowstorms and then they fizzle. This one seems like it's going to be a monster. Uh, I think that we're supposed to be on the lower end of that estimate. But two or three times since I've lived in Colorado, we've gotten three to four feet of snow. And let me tell you, it's crazy when that happens. It takes days to get dug out, but I'm looking forward to it. We have our provisions, so it's all good to go. I know. It's just so. I, I'm just going to count you blessed. I'm just going to go ahead and count <laughs> you blessed. Um, all right. That's Adam Holtz from Focus on the Families Plugged In. Oh, and Adam, um, I know yeah. that you had mentioned to me in, a, in, in an email that today's the day um, for Jerry Jenkins' book, The Chosen, uh, book one, yeah. I called you by name. Hey, we led off with an interview with him this morning. Terrific. Yeah, definitely yeah, yeah, check yeah. that he out. Was, he was in today's first segment. But I don't think that we made the connection to focus on the family. So you want to make that connection for listeners? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, it's there's another imprint. I forget the name of it, but this is a focus on the family book. We've worked with Jerry and we have a review up at pluggedin.com if you want to check it out. There you go. The other uh, the other publishing partner is Broad Street. 
So there you go. Yes. All right. Only because totally only because I have the I physically have the book in my hand. So hey, yes. thank you so much as always for joining us. We really appreciate it. You bet, Carmen. Thank you. Absolutely. We'll be right back. How do you and I live into every moment holy? How do we recognize the presence and the power of God moment by moment um, in the midst of the realities of life? Uh, every moment holy is actually a, a series of liturgies that is being developed um, by our friends at the Rabbit Room. And volume two of every moment holy uh, is now available. This one is death, grief, and hope. When you think about um, the moments in life, day in and day out, when we recognize the reality of, of the shadow of death, the way death encroaches sometimes by surprise, um, the reality of grief, and yes, the hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How do we weave all of that into meaningful liturgies for ourselves and those around us? Douglas McKelvey uh, is well-known to many as a songwriter. Uh, he joins us today as the author of Every Moment Holy. We'll be right back. Changing direction in life is not tragic, but losing passion in life is. This is Max Locato. Something happens along the way. Convictions to change the world downgrade to commitments to pay the bills. Rather than make a difference, we make a salary. Rather than look outward, we look inward, and we don't like what we see. But God is not finished with you yet. Oh, you may think He is. You may think you've peaked. You may think He's got someone else to do the job. If so, think again. The Bible says that God began doing a good work in you, and I am sure He will continue until it is finished when Jesus Christ comes again. Did you see what God is doing? A good work in you. Do you see when he'll be finished? When Jesus Christ comes again. May I spell out the message? God ain't finished with you yet. This is Max Locato. So oftentimes we think that the uh, the liturgy for a particular moment in life comes most often in the songs that we sing or the, the songs that come to mind or God brings to mind in those moments. And certainly Douglas McKelvey is well known to you as a songwriter, but the liturgies he's now writing um, provide for spoken word um, individually and for us as communities of believers Douglas McKelvey, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. Happy to be here. It is, um, it's a delight to talk with you. Uh, first of all, let's just start with what is liturgy when we use that word, and why do we need um, the kinds of liturgies that you guys are producing in the Every Moment Holy series? Sure. I think it's helpful to define the term liturgy because people use the word and can mean different things by it. Um, in, in a very narrow sense, liturgy means the content and order of a worship service. So 
every church has liturgy, even if their liturgy is, hey, we show up at 9.30 on Sunday morning without any plan, and someone stands up and spontaneously starts singing a song. And, you know, even even something that we would consider in that sense non-liturgical, there actually is an order and a content to that service. Um, but in a, a broader sense, the word liturgy can mean those rhythms and patterns in our life that have power to shape our hearts or to misshape them, either to draw us increasingly toward the things of God, of an awareness of his presence and and activity in our lives, and of a vision for his coming kingdom and of how each moment in our lives finds its context in that larger story. Or, you know, a destructive liturgy in our lives, a destructive kind of liturgical pattern could be something that's constantly drawing our attention to ourselves, um, causing us to become people who care more and more about what others think or, or, you know, drawing our hearts toward greed. So the kind of liturgies um, that, that are represented in Every Moment Holy, uh, the the book series that that I've been working on with Rabbit Room Press. These are liturgies and prayers that are for specific moments in our lives. For you know, when we're doing laundry, when we're changing diapers, when we're celebrating a birthday or a a, a meal with friends, um, the first hearth fire of the season or the anniversary of a loss. Um, so there's a, there's a wide range of topics that these cover. But the idea with all of them is that they help to frame how this moment touches on eternity for us. They, they unpack what it means that God might be at work in this moment, even in as I'm doing something mundane, that his spirit is at work to shape me, to draw my heart toward the things of God, if I'm open to that. And our hope has been that individuals, families, churches, small groups would find some of the prayers in these books that they would very naturally be able to incorporate into what the rhythm of their lives already are together. Um, and that these would be tools that would really serve the community of the the body of Christ broadly, but also, you know, specifically individuals and and families, um, giving them something that that can help to articulate their hearts in specific moments, um, but that would also be theologically rich. That would that that could have a discipling and and shepherding effect over time as people come back to these expressions, these thoughts, these theological truths again and again. So there's no question that that last point, this discipling effect, um, is absolutely, I, I would lead with that. These, um, these provide not just a language for me to use in, in times of, um, you know, when, when the moment of the day actually matches up with uh, what's in the table of contents um, in, in relationship to what's happening. 
but the language and the way that you have crafted the language and put it together for me to use as an individual or out loud with my family or in community or um, in in uh, in a recitation where you know there's a there's a call and response kind of conversational liturgy available. Uh, I I feel and hear echoes of the Book of Common Prayer. I feel mm-hmm. um, echoes of Bailey's uh, work that so many people have relied on for more than a hundred years, just in terms of how do I put together a daily practice of personal worship? Um, but it goes beyond that. And I, I want people to be able to find it. And so everymomentholy.com, everymomentholy.com is where you can go. You can get information about the entire Every Moment Holy series that the Rabbit Room is putting together. And you can see uh, more and actually download some of what we're talking about today which is the second volume, um, and we're going to get into the second volume when we come back from a very brief break. The, the second volume, uh, volume two of Every Moment Holy, is Death, Grief, and Hope. Um, and some of the liturgies in here are very, very long. I want to read a portion of, of one of them to you. It is To Speak of Dying, and on page two of To Speak of Dying, it says this, Beloved of Christ, do not hide from this truth. Each of us in time must wrestle death. In our youth, we might have run in fear from such lament, but only those who soberly consider their mortal end can then work backward from their certain death and so begin to build a life invested in eternal things. We should remember death throughout our lives, that we might arrive at last well prepared to follow our Lord into that valley and through it further still to our resurrection. I'm going to continue my conversation with Douglas Douglas McKelvey. We are talking about Volume 2 of Every Moment Holy. We'll be right back. So we just talked yesterday with Tim Keller about uh, where he is in his progress toward what he expects to be, um, the death that will come at the end of a bout with pancreatic cancer. And we talked about the hope of the cross um, that we have uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the the hope of the empty tomb. Death and grief are a reality for everyone. Hope is also a certain reality for Christians. Death, grief, and hope um, are the subject matter of the liturgies in Volume 2 of Every Moment Holy. Um, Doug, talk with us about holding those together, death and grief and hope, um, and maybe talk a little bit about the theology of death. Yeah, that's a that's a an essential subject, I think, for the church in the West to begin to wrestle with. Um, I think it's it's been easy for us to kind of push death to the outskirts of our awareness because of medical advances that we've had in the last hundred years, and and because we don't have the same proximity um, to dying that that people in earlier times did in the West and that people in many parts of the world still do. So I think we've we've lost some of the the rich theological context that the church in other parts of the world still has. Um, but that that we in the West have had at one time, but have lost. 
And a, a big part of that theology of dying is the understanding of how while death is an enemy and scripture tells us it will be the last enemy to be defeated and destroyed and we rejoice in that hope and we don't want to make the mistake of adopting some worldview and mindset that says that death is just a natural part of life i mean everything in us reacts against that right we we know that this is not as it should be when we lose someone. But at the same time, in the midst of this mortal life that each of us live, that we know will end in death, when we are baptized into Christ's death, that begins a journey for us toward our own ultimate physical dying. And each step of the way, we are learning progressively what it means to take up our cross, to die to ourselves, to lay down our own dreams and ambitions and desires, that we might dream the better dreams that God has for us, that we might pursue Christ and become more like him. And at the time that we breathe our final breath, that is when we at last are completing that process. We are laying down all of those things that we continued to try to cling to, to, to struggle, to release. All of those things that vied for preeminence in our hearts. We're, we're letting go of all of those at that point that we might finally and fully embrace our Lord and be embraced by him. And so I, I think that because that is so central to the Christian's understanding of death, that the hope, the hope that we have of our ultimate resurrection, of our union with our creator being in his unveiled presence and having the fellowship with those that we have lost restored eternally that hope cannot be separated from the grief that we feel but at the same time we cannot try to hide from the sorrow because as we see in scripture even jesus responded with sorrow and grief to the presence of death in the world that he had created he wept at the tomb of Lazarus, even though he knew that Lazarus was about to be resurrected. But he, I, I believe it was because he was seeing and feeling the grief in his own heart and of those around him at the unnaturalness of, of death. So we, we have that model that it's okay to feel completely the sorrow and the grief. We don't have to hide from it. We don't have to pretend that everything is okay and it's not there. But we have this glorious freedom as followers of Jesus who have this great hope that we can hold the sorrow in one hand fully and we can cling to the hope with the other hand fully. And we can feel sorrow and joy 
simultaneously because the grief is deep and real and the loss is real and the pain is real, but so is the hope and so is the joy to come. So it was so, those two themes that that are woven together in the prayers of this book. Yeah, it, it is it is it is a beautiful book. It is a beautiful book um visually. Um it is substantial. The artwork is um there's enough whimsy there to uh draw us in even uh, even through the uh through the way that the art um, amplifies the words on the page. I'd love for you to talk with us. I mean, there's definitely a lyrical nature to this. Um, it is poetic. It is Psalter-esque. Um, talk with us a little bit about um, the process of writing a prayer versus the process of writing a song, or do you did you find it to be kind of similar? Well, that's a really good question, Carmen, because I I spent 15 years as a song lyricist. That was my primary vocation. And of course, in okay, the space and you were of pretty a song, good at it. You're pretty good at it. I mean, like three people recorded them like 350 times or something. So yeah, it's, you're pretty good at it. In order to write song lyrics, I, there's, there's a discipline that that genre requires because you have such a small amount of real estate you know, you, the, the chorus gets repeated. So frequently you have a four-line chorus and two four-line verses and maybe a four-line bridge. So you might just have 16 short lines to try to communicate what in some cases is a profound thought that you're, you're wanting to communicate in the song. And you have to do it with a sense of the rhythm of words, with the mellifluousness, how, how well they flow off the tongue for, for a singer, and, and just the, the poetry of the, the images and relying on some of that power of poetic image that can unfold into truth in the mind of, of the listener. So I see that in, in looking back, I see those years that I spent learning to write song lyrics as essential for what I'm now trying to do with, with writing prayers and liturgies, because the, in, in two ways, it's very similar. One is that though I do have frequently more space in a prayer than I would in a song lyric, um, I'm also trying to say more in a prayer to communicate more than I would in the space of a song. And so it, it it's a similar discipline in that it, it requires saying a lot in a small space and doing so with an eye on the, the rhythm and the, the cadence of the words and the use of images um, all to, to better communicate and to, you know, hopefully sum up what would be in the heart of the person who is going to be using these prayers, who is going to be using these prayers as a means of voicing what they are feeling uh, t toward their creator. They're just beautiful. It's just, um, it's just stunning. We're actually going to close with reading 
the liturgy for in seasons of uncertainty. But I want to tell people once again, you're going to find all of this at everymomentholy.com. And, uh, and Douglas, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, here, thank you, here is, Absolutely. Here is the liturgy in seasons of uncertainty. In the midst of whatever follows, O Lord, let me meet your mercies anew and anew and anew. In the midst of my dismay, fix my eyes again and again upon your eternal promises. How this ends, that is up to you. If the next news is favor- favorable, I will praise you for the ongoing gift of life. If tomorrow's tidings are worse, still will I proclaim your goodness, my heart anchored every more firmly in the eternal joys you have set before me. Um, it goes on. It is just a, such a blessing. Everymomentholy.com. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.